0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years, maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Whether it's a Sazerac, Sriracha, or Southern barbecue, knowing the human history behind our cuisine makes everything taste better. On this week's show, we hit the books with several food historians for tales of America's culinary past. We begin with Sarah Lohman, a self-described historical gastronomist to explore the eight flavors that she believes form the foundation for that elusive term, American cuisine. Then, David Shields of the University of South Carolina shares his years of research on American culinarians, from caterers and chefs to restaurateurs. And finally, we hear the surprising story behind New Orleans' quintessential confection, the praline, from culinary historian Ryan Fertell. We're getting an edible education on this week's Louisiana Eats.
1: My name is Sarah Lohman. I'm a historical gastronomist, and my first book, this eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine.
0: As far as Sarah Lohman is concerned, the phrase, as American as apple pie, doesn't begin to cover it. Sarah is a food writer and historian who delights in digging through recipes from America's past to learn about who we are today. Her book Eight Flavors uncovers a gastronomic history that goes way beyond apple pie to delve into ingredients as diverse as sriracha and MSG. Intrigued? I was too. Here's Sarah with the eight flavors explored in her book.
1: So it's black pepper, vanilla, chili powder, curry powder, soy sauce, garlic, monosodium glutamate, and sriracha.
0: What you're really telling in the book are the stories of the people behind those ingredients.
1: Well, that is what I I really love doing with this book. You know, I do talk about the botany. I do talk about the science behind why we like some of these flavors. But very quickly in my research, I realized that they're all connected to these really unique individuals. And more often than not, they're people that don't normally get written about in the history books. Uh, They are slaves. They are immigrants. They are Mexican-Americans. They are women. Uh, These are the people who have greatly affected our food over time. So we go All the way from the story of Edmund Albius, who was a a boy, a kid, a slave in uh, Réunion, a colony, a French colony off of Madagascar. And he discovered the way to pollinate vanilla that is still used across the globe today. Vanilla is an orchid. It's native to Mexico. People were desperately in love with this flavor in the 19th century and before but when it was transported to other countries, it would blossom, but not fruit. And he changed the culinary landscape of the planet when he was a young boy. But because he was a slave, even though later he was freed, um, he simply didn't have the same opportunities that someone who was white had despite his genius. And he died in poverty. So it's this bittersweet story in that we get to know his name, which is so rare of a black man of that time, but Despite his great discovery, his life was sad after this moment. I talk about the Chili Queens of San Antonio. These were... I mean, it's, it's hard to give them a little. I can say Mexican-American. I can say American-Mexican. They were women who were living in Texas when Texas went from a Mexican state to an American state. Um, and these were young women, unmarried, who would make chili with their families and sell it as a tourist attraction in front of the Alamo. Their food was as important to the tourist scene in San Antonio in the late 19th century as they wa- were. They were um, infamous and flirtatious and sort of seductive and magical. And in some ways, stereotyped, too. And they lasted to the 1940s, uh, through about the 1940s, until modern sort of food laws shut them down. And now with the revival of the food truck industry, um, I shouldn't even say revival, um, immigrants to this country have always used food and mobile food vending as a way to start and begin to gain financial independence in this country. And then my very last chapter is about the Tran family. They are a family of Vietnamese refugees that came after the Vietnam War. And within a year after landing in this country, David Tran started making sriracha hot sauce in Southern California. So this refugee family brought us something that has now become quintessentially American. Tell us about sriracha. Sure. And I think that even looking at the bottle with its symbols in different languages makes it seem a little exotic and and sort of magic that way. Um, But the Tran family had been making hot pepper sauce back in Vietnam uh, based on a style of sauce that originally came from Thailand that Vietnamese people used in their pho. And uh, David Tran told me he landed in Boston in January 1980. Can you imagine coming from Vietnam to Boston in January? And his brother had been placed on the other side of the country. And David told me all he was thinking is, I need to do something to support my family. And he called his brother and said, do they have hot peppers there? And his brother said, yes. And so they got on a plane. And by February, they were making hot sauce. It's made from locally grown uh, red jalapeno peppers, garlic, sugar, salt. And he made it thinking, all right, there'll be Vietnamese people here. They'll want a sauce for their pho. But there is also maybe this like inkling idea of like what might Americans like or maybe I can't call it entirely luck. He's a really genius businessman, but there's something about the sauce. It's not too hot. It's nowhere near as spicy as Tabasco is. It's a little bit sweet. It's hits on a lot of things that Americans like more broadly. The bottle which David Tran also designed is really iconic and recognizable. You see it once, you remember it. You see it again, you buy it. And so it's through pho and Vietnamese cuisine that it became a part of American food very, very quickly. Within 20 years, bloggers are writing about it and saying, don't just put it on your uh, pho and don't just put it on your Chinese food. Put it on hot dogs and hamburgers too. An ingredient that has a terrible rap and that
0: people automatically shun is MSG. Yeah, monosodium glutamate. It's true. Tell us about the people behind the MSG and why we really shouldn't be afraid of it.
1: So I'm amazed in a way how much prejudice is still against monosodium glutamate. Um, it was discovered by a Japanese scientist at the turn of the 20th century. So it has been used as a specific ingredient, MSG, for a 100 years. But he discovered it in kombu dashi, which is a broth made from kelp, kombu is the Japanese word, that has been the backbone of Japanese cuisine for thousands of years. Japanese food, next time you eat it, taste it, think about it, they excel at savory. And that savory comes from um, glutamic acid and sea salt and sodium that is crystallized on the outside of this kombu. Not just there, but it also appears in soy sauce, in miso, and a lot of fermented foods, A lot of those bacteria will ingest sugars or proteins, and a byproduct of that becomes, well, glutamic acid is one of the building blocks of protein. It's in our bodies right now, actually. When glutamic acid crystallizes with sodium, that becomes MSG. People have an inherent fear of chemicals nowadays. A lot of that comes from the 60s and 70s, whereas we used to celebrate science. um, We dropped the atomic bomb. There was a thalidomide scare. We even started banning things like um, DDT and even some of the fake sugars, too. So after all that happened, then people started turning to MSG. And it became one of the most studied food additives for about 20 years. And a lot of those initial studies had a lot of bias. They didn't test to see if MSG caused physical side effects. They tested in what doses MSG caused physical side effects. And that's a pretty big problem when it comes to an unbiased scientific study. So once someone did an unbiased study, specifically um, having people ingest MSG in pill form as opposed to being able to taste it, they found that there's no difference between a placebo and MSG. It's been proved over multiple studies that it does not have any harmful side effects, but people still have a prejudice against it. That's slowly beginning to change. There's a coterie of chefs and food scientists, bloggers that are speaking out pro-MSG. A lot of them are people who have Southeast Asian heritage, a huge immigrant group of the past 40 years in the United States that's changing our cuisine in many ways. And a lot of people have called that out as xenophobic. The name for the MS the side effects of MSG is Chinese restaurant syndrome. Yet MSG is used in brands as broad as Kentucky Fried Chicken and Kraft. But no one says that they get Chinese restaurant syndrome from a Dorito. They say it comes from Chinese fast food. So there are people who, if they're chefs, who if they're not using MSG as this powdered salt, they are using ingredients like miso, kelp, and soy sauce that contain naturally forming MSG. But... It's not just limited to South Asian ingredients. Parmesan cheese is about 2% monosodium glutamate, naturally occurring glutamic acid and sodium. So you get that same savory effect from this completely natural process.
0: That is just fascinating. There's so much misconception in, in the world and certainly in the world of food. Now, while we are talking about amazing immigrants, I had never read about or heard about the history of American vegetarianism.
1: (laughs) Now, where does the cabbage cake come in? The cabbage cake. So there's also a fascinating Jewish vegetarian movement that rose out of Eastern Europe and then in America. If you're observantly Jewish, you're keeping kosher and you're separating meat and dairy. And then there was sort of a not quite a sect, but a group of people who broke away and felt that if we weren't eating meat at all, we can be even closer to God. If we're not consuming the spirit of animals, we're just having dairy meals, then that is even more religious. So there are a number of cookbooks that come out. Uh, One comes out of Eastern Europe in the 1930s, I believe it's published, um, that has hundreds of vegetarian recipes, including one that I made. I, of course, like to pick some of the weirdest ones, and one was Cabbage Cake, which actually didn't end up as strange as it sounds. a savory cake where you cook the cabbage with butter and onions and then put it between two layers of yeast bread. And it was a pretty, pretty delicious um, side or even a main course too. Um, But that led to other vegetarian cookbooks come out or Jewish cookbooks being reprinted with vegetarian recipes and then a lot of dairy restaurants in cities that were heavy with Jewish culture like New York City.
0: Sarah, it was such a thrill and an honor to sit down with such a compatriot Bravo to you and all the wonderful work you've done. And I hope you'll talk to us again on Louisiana Eats. Thank you. Sarah Lohman, author of Eight Flavors, the untold story of American cuisine. After a short break, David Shields gives us a crash course on the chefs who made the Crescent City a culinary landmark. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. poppy tooker and you're listening to louisiana eats edible content for louisiana food lovers louisiana eats is brought to you with major support from camellia brand beans done right a new orleans tradition since 1923 from rouse's markets synonymous with seafood straight from louisiana's waterways rouse's markets tastes like home And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients. Aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. David Shields holds the position of Carolina Distinguished Professor at the University of South Carolina. He's also one of the world's leading experts on Southern culinary history. His book, Culinarians, American Chefs, Caterers, and Tours, is the first ever biographical collection of culinary movers and shakers in the U.S., when David stopped by our studio, we talked about the famous chefs who put New Orleans on the culinary map. We begin with Elizabeth Kettingring Dutre Begay, or as she's better known, Madame Begay.
2: She was a national celebrity in the 1890s and on to her death. Um, you had a, almost a genre of writing Called you know the breakfast story where some visitor from uh, often celebrities came down to New Orleans, sat down for the two and a half hours there, uh, consuming that that uh, breakfast and then writing these rhapsodies afterwards.
0: Madame Begay is of course the one who's credited with having created what was called the butcher's breakfast, but it appears. That there's a lot of people who jumped on her bandwagon. Tell me about some of the other breakfasts that were so important here that you discovered in your work.
2: It's true that um, there's a moment in the 1870s when this late breakfast served at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning becomes a fixture. Uh, Madame Begay is the one who starts it. But shortly thereafter, uh, Maria Sparbe at Maley's becomes as famous. But there's a difference. Uh, She lives longer Mm. than Madame Begay. And Mayle's is an all-male preserve. You have to know someone to get in to the brunch at Maley's until prohibition takes place and they have to alter the conditions to stay alive. But that becomes, in the wake of Madame Begay's death, the famous breakfast in the city.
0: Well, another thing that is just undoubtedly part of the Louisiana culture are oyster bars, oyster saloons.
2: Well, Walter Van Rensselaer was... um, not a native of New Orleans, he was a New Yorker uh, from the Hudson Valley. He's in New Orleans in the late 1830s, but he had experienced certain things on the East Coast. One of them is the oyster cellars that were popular in the 18-teens and 20s and 30s in Philadelphia and Baltimore and to a lesser extent New York City. He comes down here and becomes one of the great hotel chefs. And the hotel chefs are, they have a real problem. A lot of their clientele are these cotton farmers from the Mississippi Valley who are coming down and staying in the hotel uh, during the commercial season. A lot of these commercial men were meat and potato people, and yet you had population of French cuisine-loving residents that you had to depend on during the non-commercial seasons, Mm -hmm. was there any category of food which appealed to both populations? And it was the oyster? The oyster was the universal donor.
0: Amazing.
2: And when he realizes that, he thinks, if I concentrate on the oyster— and not have to worry about feeding multitudes of families and people in a major restaurant, I can make so much more money (laughs) and enjoy so much more success with so much less exertion. So he opens up this extraordinary oyster restaurant, the success of Van Rensselaer's Restaurant leads to this explosion. Within two years in the 1840s, instead of just having one oyster restaurant, you had about seven or eight, and other people like the Estrados, who are making names as as uh, oyster saloon people.
0: Antonio Estrato was also really innovative because, in months with ours, when certainly people weren't eating oysters back then. He had another game. What, what was his other game?
2: One of the things that uh, Estrado took advantage of, ice warehouses began to appear in in uh, New Orleans in, in the 1820s. And actually causes sort of the ice cream moment mm-hmm. when all of a sudden the cold confection becomes the best thing you could possibly eat. Of course. Uh, and Estrado realizes that ice is is important. He becomes one of the, the big ice dealers as well. But he leaves. Uh, he leaves the city and actually winds up in San Francisco.
0: But he leaves his brother, John Estrado, behind who goes on – to do something really important at the Excelsior Oyster Saloon, doesn't that's, he?
2: That's right. He he uh, creates, I guess they called them oyster rolls back then, but perhaps you could elaborate on this history. Uh,
0: well, uh, it's definitely the poor boy sandwich. And yet what's really fabulous is that you have been able to directly trace not just what we know today is the oyster poor boy, which he was calling the oyster roll, but the peacemaker.
2: Yes. This is the thing you brought back to your household when you have not understood the wisdom of your spouse. <laughs>
0: so there's so many women in this business, which to me is another fascinating thing about this time. Tell me about some of the other women. For instance, Madame Eugene.
2: Yes, um, Madame Eugene was probably the greatest chef in New Orleans in the 1880s. Uh,
0: Okay, now that's a big throwdown because, of course, that's in direct competition with Madame Begay.
2: Well, it is, but you have to consider that the greatest restaurant in in the eyes of the people in the um, 1880s was Moreau's. Mm -hmm. Um, It and... Victor's Restaurant, the restaurant owned by the Martine family, were vied with one another for the title of preeminence. And you'll have all of these debates in the newspaper about which is the finer.
0: Just like today. But so they are serving a dinner. They are not just – it's a lot more than just the butcher's breakfast.
2: It it is. And what's particularly interesting about it, we tend to think of New Orleans cuisine as being – Creole cuisine, but it's evident that that title doesn't become popular until the 1890s. Someone like Madame Begay considers herself a French chef, and she doesn't really notice the kind of local accommodation she's making. For instance, when she makes her famous crawfish bisque, which was considered the standard a recipe for the, uh, that dish in the city, the creme de riz, the the rice flour binder that she's getting from using the Creole rice in Louisiana, different than what's being used in Paris. It's something that's local practice. So uh, we have a French cuisine that is becoming increasingly Louisiana, and she is uh, in maybe an unconscious way of into her formal training, which occurred in Alsace um, in the 1850s, early 1850s. Um, she's taking local practice and embracing it.
0: There are black women, too. I find the story of Nellie Murray particularly compelling because she began life as a slave.
2: She did indeed, and after uh, the... Um, general liberation of the slaves, Mm -hmm. their family connections secure her a job in one of the high society households in New Orleans. And it's there that she learns the other dimension of catering, that is how to set a table, how to arrange for the maximum pleasurable experience of a group of guests brought together for an evening from first to last how to manage like a field marshal
0: she also at one time travels with one of the people who she was the chef de cuisine for she travels to Europe and she has a really incredible experience in Europe, doesn't she
2: I think it's the temptation of going to Paris
0: yeah I'd be temp- I'm always tempted to go to Paris
2: <laughs> and she goes there. And she has this extraordinary moment of recognition. She sees the techniques. The ingredients are different. But she understands in a very intuitive way that this is the cooking that she does.
0: Well, David, I just have to say thank you so much for sharing the most delicious research I've heard in a long time with us.
2: Well, it's fun to share it with you, Poppy, because you, you know – exactly what's so interesting about these people who devote their lives professionally to the preparation of the best food for the public.
0: David Shields, Carolina Distinguished Professor at the University of South Carolina. Fred Minnick is an expert on the topic of bourbon whiskey. His research spans centuries of the cultural history surrounding whiskey production. That history shows up in some surprising places, from isolated cabins to the true underbelly. Actually, that's underneath the bodices of Prohibition-era women bootleggers. We turn now to Fred. For more on all things bourbon. Why in the world could there still be a confusion over whiskey versus bourbon? Is bourbon whiskey? What's this confusion?
3: Well, I, I blame the uh, Kentucky distillers uh, for this because they put it out there that bourbon isn't whiskey. Like Some of them will put it out there like, don't call us whiskey, we're bourbon. And when in fact, whiskey, you know, all bourbon is whiskey, you know, but not all whiskey is bourbon. You know, basically, I tell people that whiskey is a categorical term that basically means distilled grain aged in wood. Uh, you've got Scotch whiskey, Canadian whiskey, Irish whiskey, bourbon whiskey, rye whiskey, I mean, the list goes on and on. And they're all broken up by various uh, production methods and what have you. What you need to know about bourbon is that it's predominantly corn and goes into new charred oak.
0: You know, politics are something that just like religion, a topic we tend to avoid. But you've plunged right into that topic. So if you would, tell us about bourbon politics.
3: Well, when we talk about bourbon politics, it really dates back before bourbon was really a quintessential term in American whiskey. And that's when uh, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton imposed an excise tax on distillers, and it created a Little Whiskey Rebellion. So the first time that we had uh, federal troops ordered to take arms against uh, U.S. citizens was over a whiskey tax when distillers in Pennsylvania and Maryland revolted uh, against paying taxes for the very country they helped fight for and and found. And so, you know, throughout history, if you study it from a pure whiskey perspective, bourbon is, is right there in the thick of it. Uh, more recently, what we have uh, from a political standpoint within the industry is that everyone's suing everyone over, you know, trademark disputes. And the most famous one that that is on the record is when, you know, the Kentucky Distillers Association, which is the the chief lobby group in Kentucky, um, sued Sazerac, which owns Buffalo Trace, for using the term Kentucky Bourbon Trail. And they end up settling out of court, but there's been... You know some nasty disputes over similar circumstances, and there are some people who won't can't be in the same room together because of uh, they just don't like each other. But I don't think you're going to find many industries that aren't like that. The difference with bourbon is it's a little bit more dramatic and a little bit more glorified because there's so many people who who love bourbon.
0: After all, it is a flammable spirit.
3: That's right. right. It is. <laughs> it is flammable.
0: I really would like to hear the story about how women saved bourbon.
3: So, when we look at uh, American distilling, uh, there were a lot of uh, people who have been heralded over time. People like Basil Hayden, Jacob Beam, uh, Robert Samuels. You know, these are people who have been heralded through various brands. But there were also slave distillers and women distillers. You know, Jack Daniels recently came out and admitted that uh, it was a slave who taught Jack Daniel how to distill and not actually a reverend, as they have told in many tours. Uh, how in
0: the world did they get that secret out of them in so long? Or was somebody holding the fire to their feet on that?
3: Uh, well, the New York Times did a story on it, and I actually was quoted in that in that story talking about that. I have a lot of research on, on slave distillers um, and how we may never actually know how much they've contributed, but I do know that they've contributed a lot, and all the major players in distilling have uh, tax records of owning slaves. And so, uh, and a lot of times they would be, slaves would be purchased, you know, if they would receive a higher premium if they worked at a, you know, Caribbean distillery. Uh, And it's the same with women. You know, women were uh, distilling in the 1700s and 1800s, but just never really received any credit. In fact, uh, based on my research, you know, uh, on archaeological finds, you know, long before I was born, uh, women created beer in Samaria, and women actually created the very first uh, distillation techniques. And they weren't necessarily they weren't used for alcohol, but the distillation was created by women. Uh, What hurt female distillers in in the worldview was witchcraft, is because distillation would be connected to witchcraft and and uh women would be executed in the sixteen hundreds for uh having aqua vitae on their person uh or having it in their home uh because it was considered to be you know witch's potion and that sort of thing and so a lot of women were executed who were actually distillers and so that damaged a lot of the growth of, of women distillers. But in America uh there were several women who were running distilleries in Kentucky Um, The uh, Nelson Greenbrier distillery was ran by a woman uh, for a large amount of time. And for in the late 1800s, that was as big as Jack Daniels and George Dickel, where women made probably the biggest uh, impact in American spirit is they were better bootleggers than men during Prohibition. Was uh,
0: it the skirts? What was that about?
3: <laughs> you know, for the time, it was it was considered uncouth for a man to suspect a woman of any kind of criminal activity. And so syndicates would begin bringing in women to bootleg and drive and you know, send all of the barrels of whiskey or beer or rum or whatever it was, um, and because they wouldn't be suspected. This became such a problem that around nineteen twenty five, Uh, The Treasury Agency uh, believed that female bootleggers outnumbered men bootleggers by five to one. They were very prolific, and that creation of a new style of criminal led to female officers. And so women bootleggers created this whole industry of of women cops because men couldn't search women. It was actually illegal for a woman to be searched by a man in many states. Uh, And so... There was that aspect, and then there was also the women who climbed to the top and created their own businesses. Prior to Prohibition, there was this woman named uh, Clea Lithgow, and she moved to uh, the Bahamas and set up a legitimate wholesale company. And she had acquired uh, rums and uh, scotches and ryes prior to Prohibition, and then turned around and uh, sold it to a guy by the name of uh, the real Bill McCoy. Uh, who imported it back in the United States illegally, but imported it nonetheless. Uh, and so she created this, and you know she became known as the queen of the bootleggers, actually got arrested here in New Orleans, uh, stood trial and, and all that, was found innocent of her crimes because the, the two people who had her boat um, admitted to stealing it. Uh, if you think about a woman who has the power to run her own, Uh, rum-running and whiskey-running business in Prohibition, if you work for her, you're probably a little afraid to uh, turn around and rat on her. So I've always thought that she probably uh, convinced them not to uh, tell the truth. But she was a very interesting character. Uh, Also in Prohibition, a woman by the name of Mary Dowling uh, worked with her uh, family in Kentucky to move their distillery from from Kentucky to Juarez, Mexico, and they made uh, Mexican bourbon. During Prohibition and brought it into the United States. And uh, Mexican bourbon would actually be a thorn in the side of American distillers for a very long time. And that was the chief reason why uh, they pursued uh, to make bourbon a unique product of the United States in 1964.
0: Well, that's great. I just want to thank you so much,
3: Fred, for. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Love talking bourbon with you anytime. Please come back and see us again. You got it. Fred Minnick, author, and whiskey expert. I'll do my time, I'll pay my fine Ain't nothing
4: wrong with what I do Jesus turned the water to wine Wouldn't I make him a
0: bootleg or Coming up next, scholar Ryan Fertel gives us the history of the classic Louisiana treat, the praline. But first... What is a celebration cake, and what is its history? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back.
4: On the north side in a hollow tree,
2: daddy made a true believer out of me. <laughs>
0: I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com, St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is a celebration cake, and what's its history? The great cake, as it was originally called in 16th century England, was baked in the huge ovens of the country manor houses. Often weighing as much as 35 pounds, the cake was always stuffed full of currants and iced with a sugar and egg white frosting. The great cake came to America with the earliest English settlers, where by the 1700s in Hartford, Connecticut's colonial court, it became known as election cake. Americans of the 1800s transformed the great cake into what we'd call today the fruit cake, serving it at weddings, birthdays, funerals, and of course at holiday times. I'm Poppy Tooker. And you're listening to Louisiana Eats. And now, the story behind the classic Louisiana sweet, the praline. Images of 19th century New Orleans are filled with tignon-wearing praline sellers offering these crispy sugar patties from great woven baskets on the streets of the French Quarter. Food historian and scholar Ryan Fertel has done quite a bit of research on Louisiana's quintessential candy and joined us in the studio to share what he learned. Well,
4: it's hard to get at what is the history of pralines, at least in the city. It's kind of, I call it the, the, the Creole confectionery. It's like, it's so omnipresent here, so tied into the history and culture of the city. Some stories, some myths place them at almost the founding of New Orleans. We gotta remember that, that it ties ingredients from all over the Atlantic world. So um, sugar from the Caribbean, pecans and milk locally. It's most likely a French invention. And um, it also incorporates all those things that aren't so tangible from all around the Atlantic Ocean. So history, languages, race.
0: So, however in the whole world the confection gets here, it suddenly in the 19th century becomes very prevalent in the lore. And certainly in old woodcuts and imagery, we see that praline cellar again and again, don't we?
4: We do, um, especially in, in histories, in tales of, uh, of 19th century antebellum New Orleans. But tales and, and histories that are published in the early 20th century, um, they always portray the praliniere, the, the African-American woman selling pralines on the streets of, of antebellum New Orleans. However, looking at uh, accounts from the 19th century... There's nothing. There's no accounts of, of women selling pralines out of baskets before the Civil War. I looked specifically at traveler accounts, um, editorials, letters to the editor, ads, all from the uh, the Picayune, from the newspaper.
0: So when did you see the first accounts of this praliniere in print?
4: Well, you really start to see them in the 1870s, 1880s. You start to see a lot of traveler accounts in the 1890s. They're describing the streetscape of New Orleans and how it's changed since the war. Um, And it did change a lot. Um, You had African-American women who, you know, had more freedom to sell items on the streets, confections, um, by selling candy. Women were able to build a career, build a business. They were able to uh, buy a home. They were able to um, raise a family.
0: And I recall you talking about how sometimes they were even playing with their imagery or they were playing into the imagery. Explain that.
4: Sure. So the praline cellar or praliniere, it's a recognized symbol. Um, it's in all types of, of histories for the past 150 years of the city. Typically, it's, it's what we'd recognize as the mammy. Uh-huh. Um, so the mammy image. So a tignon, um, it would be a kind of a bigger woman in a dress she would be kind of safe in a way um that would she's motherly uh-huh. um but these women because they were business owners selling the recipes on the street selling their candy on the streets of new orleans they were smart enough they're intelligent enough to play into this imagery which was prevalent even then this this what we associate later with gone with the wind this moonlight magnolia's myth um That was being played. That was being sold to tourists and to Southerners immediately after the Civil War. And these women would dress like that. They'd play into the myth. They'd play into the stories being created by uh, white men to sell proleans.
0: So this imagery, in essence, became a marketing tool for them. It
4: was a marketing tool, yeah.
0: That's pretty fascinating. And
4: we could see that in the proline shops in the quarter today. That mammy image um, is is prevalent, either in signs, within the shops, on the packaging itself.
0: It's amazing how that's still being perpetuated. It's being
4: perpetuated, but at the same time, it was being perpetuated by the women themselves for all the right reasons. Um, That is to make some money, to build a career, to raise a family, to
0: build a home by selling prolines. So you did all this research. And, you know, you began to find the accounts of the praline sellers, and you had these totally wackadoodle names that you found in history for what they were calling the candy. Would you talk to us about that?
4: Sure. So if you look at pictures of pralines um, over the decades, color pictures, you'll see three distinct colors. You'll see the kind of brown or tannish khaki-colored pralines that we know and see everywhere. Then you see a a pink confection, similarly shaped, sometimes a little bit differently, and you'll see a white one, too.
0: What was the difference in flavor?
4: Well, we know from some accounts from some early cookbooks that the white most likely had a a coconut flavor, Mm -hmm. Um, and the pink most likely it was food coloring.
0: Okay, and they had special names.
4: Looking at the picune, I did a search. You could do these searches online. You type in the word praline, it's like a Google search, and you get every use of the word "proline." So in the 1880s and 1890s, prolines are all over the Picayune. People are talking about them all the time. This is people that work for the Picayune, this is uh, reporters on the street, and these are traveler accounts. Uh, back then, people would, uh, when they'd come to New Orleans, they'd write about it and they'd send it to the paper. So. I found a traveler account uh, from February 1880, um, a man named Alex Porter Morse, And Alex Porter Morse was from the area, um, but he had long ago, before the war, moved to Washington, D.C. And he had visited in maybe late 79, early 1880. He hadn't been back in New Orleans for three years. And he said that When he visited New Orleans in the late 1870s, that last time, he said it was this wretched place. It was awful. The people were despondent. I mean, it was part of... It was a just depressed city suffering the effects of the Civil War. But he comes back... In late 79, 1880, he publishes this letter, and he says that New Orleans is transformed. He says he doesn't even recognize the city, and he mentions some specific things, and one of them is is the street, the scenes from the streets, and, and he loved to walk the streets. And he said that he saw vendors on the streets for the first time in his life on the streets of New Orleans. He said he saw um, men selling Italian oranges. He said there were Acadian turkey farmers.
0: Acadian turkey farmers. Right, so
4: Cajun turkey farmers. And he said they were marchands, which is the French word for, for seller, vendor, merchant, of flowers, pralines, white mice, and poodles along Canal Street.
0: <laughs> okay. So white mice and poodles? Like, what's that about?
4: Okay. Well, I think it's important that he, he kind of separates these three candies. He says there's pralines, white mice, and poodles. Historians, academics like to think and say that they live on facts, but we also live by conjecture. And so I'm going to conjecture a bit. Okay. Um, I think the white mice were the white praline-shaped candies, those coconut candies. Um, Mice are somewhat praline-shaped or pralines are somewhat (laughs) mouse-shaped. I love it. So those... Maybe were the white mice. Maybe that is what they were called in the 19th and early 20th century.
0: Okay, I'm buying that. And how about the poodle? All
4: right, poodles. I did a bit of research on poodles, poodle history, poodle (laughs) culture in 19th century America.
0: Oh, where food history will lead you, huh? Right, exactly. So
4: (laughs) poodles were immensely popular, not so much to own in America in the late 19th century, but they were show dogs, um, and not in in the sense that we know now, but they were kind of circus dogs. They'd be traveling poodle shows. They're dressing up poodles as ballerinas, as school children. They're also painting poodles. They're dyeing the coats of poodles. One of the most popular colors for poodles, of course, was pink. Yes. And you'd have show dogs. You'd have troops of traveling pink poodles doing tricks, dancing, walking on two legs, traveling around America. This is a time of, of P.T. Barnum. Of the traveling circus. It's my thought that New Orleanians saw these pink poodles, the cuteness of it, and named this pink candy, this dyed pink candy, after the pink poodle.
0: Oh, Ryan, I just love your theories. This is delicious and such a sweet story, if I can say so. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. Food writer, scholar, and praline detective Ryan Fertell. I like the way he twists his tail. I would find what he ain't for sale. But let me play with your poodle. Let me play with your poo. Let me play with your poo. I mean your little poodle doe. Yeah. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Don't forget to subscribe to Louisiana Eats for extra content, including exclusive podcasts and more. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit dagostinopasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Palmerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Molydew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.